0: I'll be reading Matthew 10, 7 through 10. As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse the lepers. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. Today we continue a series that I trust has been helpful to you. And that series is, how do we develop or how do we get a hold of spiritual tools for surviving hard times? Boy, the boat is listing this way today. Last week it was this way. Last week we had like 12 people over here and 86 over here. It was great. Uh, anyway. We are looking at tools, and we all need them. The context for Sabbaths ago was a father who had gone home, assassinated his five children, his wife, and killed himself because of job loss and economic threat. And that was the context. That was the bad news of the week that generated, for me anyway, the idea that it said, look, this is going to keep happening. People out there have lost hope, and our members are not immune from very difficult times. What a tragedy for someone with faith, someone with a relationship with God, to somehow lose perspective and lose hope and uh, self-destruct in the wake of economic and other hard times. So over the next few weeks still we're going to be looking at tools to help you in uh, 2009 and beyond hopefully because once we have them uh, it's easy to forget them in good times but once we develop these and strengthen these in uh, tough times uh, they stay with us as Christians and they help us along the way. Well, just to recap very quickly for those of you who've been here and those of you who haven't, both, um, we looked at the ground of our being four weeks ago. What or who are you was the question, and we read Genesis 1 and 1 John 3 to come up with an answer, and the answer is very clear in Scripture, we are Children of God made by his hand, that is who we are. And when we are children of God, uh, we have a status, we have value, we have purpose, we share in his very being. And all of those things are important because as Acts 17 says, in him we live and move and have our being, having been created by him and through him. And for him. The next week, uh, we looked at the the uh, question of. I want to make sure I have it at the next week. Yes, Uh, the sermon title was "Holdem or Foldem." The earth is the Lord's. We looked at Psalm 24 and reminded ourselves that not only were we part of a creation, and not only do we have value as children of God, sons and daughters of God and status, and so forth. But the context in which we live is his as well. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God, and that really everything we have belongs to God. Our call as Christians is to steward what he gives us wisely. Now, I will be the first to tell you that I have not always stewarded wisely what God has given me and for that I confess my sin. I'm guessing most of you can make a similar confession, either in very small ways or in profound and insane kinds of ways. Most of us uh, are living, uh, if we were to reflect on it, in ways that we would not live if we could have known what 2009 would look at. But whatever our mistakes, whatever our assets, whatever our liabilities, whatever our ups or downs, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He is the maker, yes. He is also the owner and the provider. And we can depend on him. Uh, We can let go of our things because they aren't ours. We can understand that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, which was our text then the following week. As we looked at the matter of trust, Job 1, 20 to 22, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, one of these days, I'm going to talk about that text again in the context of tools, because while we're not there yet, one of the tools for surviving tough times is worship. That is, believe it or not, one of the important tools But worship isn't always what we think it is. And so we're going to take a quick look at that biblically as one of the tools. And uh, I encourage all of you, if you have interest, to let me know that you would like to go to the upcoming worship conference hosted by our West Region at the Media Center in Simi Valley, March 5 through 7. Job 122. Was that passage, the matter of trust? And what a difficult thing trust is for us still. We have a maker, we have a redeemer, we have a God who loves us, we have personal stories and corporate stories that we can share of God's acts and His hand. We have the scriptures which share of His, and we still struggle to trust. It is our very nature. Our nature since the fall is twofold. It is a nature that does not trust, and it is a nature that rebels. That is the essence of the sinful nature. It is a nature that does not trust, and it is a nature that rebels. And so we are captive in that, except thanks be to Christ, who gives us the victory, who won it for us, and who leads and teaches and works with us every day to gain and build trust. One of the things that we talked about was how Christ so coveted our trust that he was willing to go to Calvary to earn it again. And what a glorious thing that is. So that's where we've been and where we are today is one of a two-parter called Solitude and Multitude, Family and Community. And we're going to look at some of the tools that are ours there. Our text for today was Matthew 10. If you're turn to it and kept your finger there open it again if not let's find Matthew 10 now a couple things that are just really helpful to note right off the bat pardon me looking over my glasses these are strictly reading and looking through makes you all look like unmentionable so I'll just keep it here uh, and look over. Maybe it'll add 10 years. Maybe it'll add 20 IQ points. Maybe it'll make me wise. I don't know. Uh, yes. The context of our passage today is the sending out of the tw- 12. Now, this is an act of commissioning. The disciples have already been chosen and called by Christ. So, this isn't the choosing and calling of the 12. This is the sending out, the commissioning of the 12. And Jesus is asking them to do what he does on behalf of him for the multitudes and for the people. Now, if we look at what Jesus did, the order is pretty tall here. Very tall indeed. Give sight to the blind, heal the cripples, heal the sick, raise the dead. Yikes. Yikes. Those are very tall orders, aren't they? How many of you are in the practice of doing those, those four things? Hmm. I have to admit, I haven't raised the dead ever myself. I, In fact, it is not I who would do it, is it? It would be God who would do that through some act. But the context is... Uh, what the disciples are to do, to understand their purpose, first of all, and to understand their value, secondly. You see, Jesus tells them not to hoard valuables or to take with them provisions, that they're worthy of their hire. That is to say... Because of what they do in place to place, because of the acts of compassion and goodness and kindness, because of the message, because of the healing that they bring, they are worthy of their keep. They're worthy of their hire. That is to say, they are to be provided for and they will be provided for on the way. And that really, that really speaks to all of us. Starting in verse 6, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Those in my house, says Jesus. As you preach, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now, this is a huge theme in Matthew. Huge. The kingdom of heaven is near even among you. And Jesus is referring to the kingdom of God as he is bringing it and manifesting it in a way that has never been conceived or known before. And it's a point in time that goes onward and will have an eschatological fulfillment of the reign of God or the kingdom of God yet to come as well. But we live in the time of the kingdom of God still, interestingly enough. The kingdom of heaven is near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely you give, don't take any gold or silver or copper on your belts, take no bags for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep, whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. And he just tells them how they are to greet and be at peace and so forth. I tell you the truth, verse 15, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for the town that rejects you. I'm sending you out like sheep among the wolves, so be as smart as snakes and as innocent as doves. I haven't yet recently compared my intelligence to that of a snake, but you get the picture. Be on your guard against men as they will hand you over to local councils, flog you in their synagogues, and on account of me you will be brought before governors and kings. So, the context of what Jesus is saying in this passage is difficult times. It is not about an established religion, an accepted religion, an accepted message or word. It is not about something that won't create a social ripple or be noticed. It is about something that will be controversial. It is about something that will bring you before authorities. It is about something that you might be accused of being an insurrectionist for, or a traitor for, or one who incites riots You see, uh, Jesus was accused of these sorts of things. So the context is set. Freely you have received, freely give. I think that ties directly into what I have been talking about in terms of God's ownership. Because the gifts that he brings, in addition to those material things, health, healing, life itself, These gifts that he brings through his spirit are freely given. You cannot pay for a miracle. I know there are people in this life who try, but you cannot pay for a miracle. There is nothing you can offer that will compensate God for the grace that he gives you. The only thing we can do that comes anywhere close is is the giving of ourselves. The committing of our own hearts and lives. The turning away from our mistrust and rebellion. That's called repenting. Turning away from mistrust and rebellion. And turning to God, who loved us and made us, and redeemed us and saves us. And so with this free gift that has come we are then to freely give the spirit isn't ours to have and to hold the spirit would use us to do good works we're prepared in advance to do for the kingdom of God which is at hand does that make sense are you with me so part of the economy of God is flow through Now, I have Quicken program on my computer and I categorize everything sometimes to the point of ridiculousness. And it really isn't that useful because I'm not very good at keeping track of my cash. As my wife will say, I am a leak. I leak $20 bills and they are never to be found again. And maybe you do the same. I know it has to be, you know, a tank of gas here, a Starbucks cup of coffee there, uh, you know, a quick lunch with somebody here. It's, it's not that I'm throwing my money away. I just don't remember where it went. Any of you like me? Okay, I don't want to know if you're the kind of person who can be given $100 by your wife on Monday and still have it the following Sunday. If you're that kind of person, write a book about it and let me read it another time because I cannot relate to you I cannot. I'm not that kind of guy. It just holds in the pocket there. So anyway, I categorize everything to ridiculous detail, but let's say, for example, I have an expense, but I know there's going to be an income against that because I'm actually paying for something that I'll be reimbursed for it. That's what I call flow-through. It's just kind of a little account note that i make that this is going into this category and it better have a corresponding amount flowing out or coming in or vice versa and that's how i know that it was a wash and that it's done and taken care of now hopefully at the end of the year my flow through balance is zero it never is i always forget to make some entry or do something anyway you know that's what you get when you're not rick bell we can't all be rick bell we we might want to be but we can't all be rick bell For those of you who don't know, he's our treasure, really accurate guy. Okay, so here we are looking at the economy of God, and it's kind of a flow-through. We freely give because we've freely received. There is God's input into our lives and our input out into the lives of others. And that is part of the economy of God, and that is one of the tools in stewardship that we must never let go of. Because when we forget how the economy of God works, we step out of participating in that economy. We endanger the flow of gift in when we stop the flow of gift out. Does that make sense? So that's part of today's text, but the way that this relates to the larger picture of solitude and community will, or maybe that's just a, we'll look at that as a vein that's parallel. Parallel. There are several passages in Scripture that we we actually have time to look at today, and stories, and so I'm just going to do it in broad strokes, and we, we may go to the Word a couple of times here. The first story is of Moses, and it takes place during the Exodus, and it's recorded in the book of Exodus. Moses is at Mount Sinai. Now, I believe this is probably the traditional site of Mount Sinai, which would be uh, in that V-shaped piece of land uh, where the Gulf of Arabia is basically now, west of Egypt and south. And Israel is encamped there. And Moses is called to a divine appointment. It starts in Exodus 19. Moses is with the people of Israel, and they are to be given the commandments. And Moses goes up onto the mountain and begins to receive the word of the Lord. And it goes way beyond the Ten Commandments. It goes to rules for business rules for social and sexual conduct. It goes to rules for sacrifice and slaughter of animals and diet and foods. It goes to the design and construction of the wilderness tabernacle. There is a lot that Moses receives. We kind of think, you know, I I think we uh, sometimes don't look at Stuff after we've got it in our heads from childhood, and the childhood Greg that just kind of uh, learned these stories knows Moses went up on the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, and you know came back down and found people worshiping a golden calf. How many of you know it the way I knew it? But that's not really what happened. I mean, that is what happened. But he went up on the mountain, and he was there forty days and forty nights. He vanished in a pillar of cloud and fire into an earthquake zone. Can you imagine being the people of Israel and wondering what had happened to your leader? Now, these were not sophisticated, educated people. When Moses stretched his rod out over the sea, it parted. And while at some level they may have known that was God, Moses was a powerful figure to them. He was God to them in many ways, as a parent is to a child. Here Moses says he's led them out into nowhere, and he's gone up into a mountain, and God's killed him. That's for sure. Nobody lives up there in the storm of the mountain of God for 40 days and 40 nights. What are we going to do? We had better do what we can do to get out of this mess, and I'll tell you who we can turn to. We can turn to the real gods of where we came from. You know the story, Aaron builds them a calf of gold. They worship it. And Moses comes down the mountain and sees them dancing around this thing and is so enraged, he shatters the very stone tablets God has engraved with the Ten Commandments. God would later invite Moses to come to the mountain with blank tablets that he might write another set for Moses. That's Exodus 34. This story ends in Exodus 32, really, with him coming down the mountain. And in chapter 24, this is where we read at the end of chapter 24. You can look if you like. At the end of chapter 24, it records for us that Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So that's the first story. The first story is of perhaps the greatest prophet apart from Jesus Christ, the greatest leader of the Old Testament, the keeper of the people, the one who delivers them on God's behalf and bequest and behest from Egypt to the border of Canaan. Moses is with God on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights turn next to 1 kings 19 1 kings 19 there is a first and a second kings if you end up in 2 kings 19 you won't know where you are it won't make any sense but you go to 1 kings 19 and you see another story i want to reference This is the story of the second great prophet of the Old Testament. What was his name? Elijah. Elijah Elijah too is confronting false religion as Moses did. That is to say anything that takes us away from the worship of the one who created heaven and earth created us and redeemed us. That was the story. Delivered us from bondage. And Israel was in a dark time in its kingship. Ahab was a weak puppet king of a wicked foreign princess queen named Jezebel who had brought her gods and her ways with her and was ruthless and cruel and did not hesitate to use all sorts of tools to get her way. And the worship of Baal, the bull god, was prominent in Israel at the time. And Elijah has been in hiding. He's been in hiding in a town called Seraphath, And three years... Of drought, three and a half years of drought have gone by, and desperate times are upon the land. Oh, it is hard times. It's starvation time. The wheat is gone, the flour is gone. The land is desolate. Animals are desiccated. It's hard times. Elijah challenges the king and queen. And on Mount Carmel meets them. Two altars will be constructed of stone. Trenches, an altar, trench put around it. Wood put on the altar. A bull slaughtered and laid on the wood. And water poured over the whole thing. And Elijah, his God, would answer. He would go on that day to cut the heads off of 300 priests of Baal. I'm glad that's not in my job description. I feel like it some days. Not a good time to come in, probably. But uh, nevertheless, it was something Elijah took on. This great man of God. Now, I don't know if you've done much physical stuff lately, but just have somebody take a catcher's mitt and you try to knee that mitt a hundred times in a row and see how tired you are. Now imagine trying to carry um, whatever pound sword it is around and chase people down and cut 300 heads off. After praying all day and walking around uh, taunting your opponents, it was a long day. And Elijah is miserably tired. Ever been miserably tired? It's almost as if God couldn't console you, you know? You're just beyond consolation, really. You're just so tired you can't see hope. You can't see what God is doing even. A word gets to Elijah after all of this that Jezebel is not pleased and not impressed. And she is going to do to him what he did to the priests of Baal. And Elijah begins to run. Chapter 19. And run. Let's turn. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servants there, while he himself, went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Sound familiar? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and collapsed and fell asleep. I don't know how long he slept, but his perception was this. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days And 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, "Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by." Well, you know the story. There was a great and powerful wind, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the quake. And after that came a fire, and the Lord was not in the fire. And after that a whisper, a gentle whisper. And Elijah pulled his cloak over his face and went out of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats what he said earlier, I am the only one left. The Lord said, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus, and when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from Abel, mehalo, to succeed you as prophet. Well, that's the story. Forty days and forty nights nourished the bread and water sent by an angel. Elijah, the great prophet, fleeing from a woman. And in the New Testament, there is a great prophet, greater than all, but one who is like Moses, a deliverer, and one who like Elijah will counteract false religion and call people out to the worship of the true God, and his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us, and his name shall be Yeshua, the Lord saves, his name shall be called Jesus. And we read in Matthew 17, turn there. Now, actually, before we get to 17, I want to go uh, to earlier in Matthew. To Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and tempted him in three ways. First, that stones become bread, that second, he jump from the pinnacle of the temple, and third, that he bow down and worship him. And Jesus refuses all three meeting these temptations with Scripture and is ministered to by angels. Now, a responsible hermeneutic of these texts would focus on Jesus as the new Moses and the new Elijah. A responsible reading of these texts would focus on the use of the 40 days and 40 nights, the bread and the water, the uh, manna, all those things, and the ministry of angels and the Spirit of God. That would be a responsible hermeneutic, and I would urge you to think in those terms. Because what is being done here in this device is powerful. Jesus is being heralded as a new and different kind of prophet, one in the tradition of Moses and Elijah, one who is greater than any who have come before. And this is very, very important to grasp in terms of knowing who Jesus is and understanding the Old Testament history. But for tools' sake, for the purposes of today's Conversation uh, today's sermon. I want us to think in terms of solitude and multitude. You see, in order for us to meet God and discern what it is that God wants for us or for a people, in order for us to be ministered to by angels. To be led, as it were, by the Spirit. The first tool of this set is solitude. Now that is not a popular concept today. And by the way, I'm not talking about you personality types who get home, barely say hi to the wife and kids, and go in and sit in front of the computer or the TV, or you women who as soon as the kids are at school, run off to do your thing. I'm not talking about that kind of solitude. I'm talking about a chosen time. And it's not a solitude in the sense that nobody is there because clearly God is there, isn't he? Yes? But it is chosen solitude in that we have set and stepped apart from the crowd, from the multitude. And in doing so, we have reassurance and direction. I think of all that Moses was given up there, way more than the Ten Commandments. All that he was given up on that mountain and brought back to Israel and the revolution that that brought to a people. It was, it's mind-blowing to consider the consequences of that 40 days and 40 nights. And then I think of Elijah and his journeys and this mountaintop encounter with God, in which he realizes what the voice of God is. And he hears the call to continue ministry and to anoint others to replace those who've not acted as they should in kingship and to anoint a successor prophet to keep the word going. I think of Elijah in this time of solitude with all that he knew about God and this incredible connection that he had to God and how it was deepened in this solitude such that he was taken, translated, never seeing death. Jude records for us that Moses was resurrected after his death. His body can be found no more. These two amazing prophets leading up to the one greatest prophet who on the third day was raised. In one account, raises himself in the other account by the voice of his father. Jesus, the son of God. And all of these figures pursued solitude even in tough Times in order to be able to discern God's will and where to go next. And in a busy world with crowded minds and confused spirits, we need to pursue solitude on occasion. Start with two or four hours. Look for an eight or 24 hour period. See if you can carve out 48 hours. It will be amazing what happens in such a short time. And that is a tool for hard times. The second is the flip side of that. And what is it? Multitude. We're going to hit this more in future sermons. But multitude is where we go back to or into to do ministry. Solitude is what we come to out of the multitude. And the multitude is what we go back into when we re enter some kind of community. Jesus sought time away from the multitudes and he sought times to minister to the multitudes, to be with the multitudes. And so let's turn then to Matthew 17. Here's one occasion when he did just this. Peter has just made his confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And six days later, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is with James and Peter and John. And Jesus is transfigured before them, and two figures appear along with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Now, I reference this because of things that we've been talking about leading up to this, this incredible confirmation. But Jesus seeks time of solitude, sometimes by himself, sometimes with a few, and then he re-enters ministry with the twelve and faces the multitudes. And what we'll get to in another, another time is the way in which... Multitude, namely in the form, or a few, namely in the form of family and community, are key tools for surviving tough times. And we have a family, individually, of course, but collectively, in the body of Christ, the church of God. And that family is one of those resources and one of those tools. So we'll get to that in another another sermon. But today I want you to take with you this idea that great things happen when we choose to step into solitude and to hear the voice of God and to discern through that voice where it is and what it is God wants us to do next and to be in touch and able to hear. That tool will get us through tough times along with all the others. That, too, is a spiritual tool for survival. And so, Lord Jesus, in solitude and community, may we both hear the word and find the strength to face the challenges of our time. In Jesus' name, amen.